The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. This is the Nonprofit Hour program here on X-Ray FM. The show is brought to us by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. I'm Jason Dennington. On Sunday, February 28th, we hosted our latest live recording event of the Nonprofit Hour show at the Waypost on North Williams. We are now recording shows live there once a month, and our next event will be Sunday, April 3rd at 5 p.m. Audiences are encouraged to come on down and catch our live interviews and musical performances firsthand. So set the date and we hope to see you there. At the top of today's show, we'll hear from the last live show where Phil Bussey interviewed current city council candidate and founder of Reading Frenzy on Mississippi Avenue, Chloe Udaly. They spoke about her background in activism, the reasons why she is currently running for a seat on Portland City Council, and the ways in which nonprofits and government interact to strive to make our city a better place to live for all. We are currently interviewing a number of candidates who are also running for city government this year, and we'll be hearing from them in upcoming episodes. In the second half of the show, Phil speaks with Mac Pritchard of Pritchard Communications, a Portland company that provides communications to social changemakers across the country to help make the world a better place. They have supported numerous nonprofits over the years, and Mac Pritchard explains to us why, especially for nonprofits, it is vital to have a strategic plan for communications and marketing to reach their organizational goals. Before we hear those interviews, though, we have some news from a past guest we have featured on the Nonprofit Hour, Opal Environmental Justice. This past Friday, they just held a press conference to alert us about the new initiative from their Bus Riders Unite project. They feel that TriMet's new electronic fare system that is being implemented will negatively impact low-income residents of our community and are seeking a solution that will be more equitable for all. Sean Fleek and Orlando Lopez of Opal visited the X-Ray in the Morning show to talk about the event. Sean Orlando, tell us what's going on with Transit Justice. Well, uh, this Friday, we're going to be launching our campaign for a low-income fare. Um, this is a campaign that our members, uh, the Bus Riders Unite group, um, has decided to prioritize this year. And we'll be launching our campaign at the Jan Space, which is located on the corner of 82nd and Division at 3 p.m. tomorrow. Terrific. How come? Um, so uh, folks have realized that, you know, this is uh, something that our community needs now. Um, as you know, we are living right now in like in a housing crisis here in Portland. People have been continually been pushed out further and further away from work, um, from school, from uh, church, uh, green spaces, and have to take longer commutes into town. And so this has become an, also an economic burden. Yeah. Uh, so folks shouldn't be worried about whether or not they, they can afford to get on the bus. Uh, I mean, there's already plenty of stress out there uh, trying to pay bills, paying rent. Um, so uh, transportation should be one of the last things they should be worrying about. 
give a, give an example of somebody you've been working with who's, to use your term, experiencing transit injustice. Um, well, there's actually a lot of folks, um, but lately we've been working with a lot of folks in the Coley neighborhood. Um, there's uh, these. Uh, there's a lot of bus stops that aren't like safe. Um, so you, there, and you see this all over Portland, in East Portland especially, where it's just literally a pole stuck on the ground. And so, and so, what's what's a pole stuck in the ground? Uh, so it's just a bus stop. Yeah. Uh, so it's got the, it's like this iconic bus stop uh, pole. That's no blue. place to sit. No water cover. Mm-hmm. You're just, just there. You're this. hoping. You're hoping it works out. Yeah. It the, just uh, got may, the sign. Maybe there's a sidewalk there. Right. And the uh, and and. You know, and that, if you contrast that with uh, downtown, you have like a nice shelter. You got like yep. uh, a screen that's telling you what time the bus is going to be coming. Yep. Um, and it's like very modern looking. Um, Sean Fleek, what do you what do you chalk it up to? Uh, why do you think? I mean, I can sort of say, okay, well, downtown is more crowded, so maybe they should get. Maybe it makes sense to have cover there. When in East Portland, we don't need cover. Well, I mean, We're strong people. Yeah, that, we can have, carry our own umbrella or just use our head. Sure, uh, that that might be one fairly paternalistic justification for why downtown has better bus access. I would say that the reason is... Why is that paternalistic? You're the one saying people need rain cover. I'm saying people are strong. People have heads. (laughs) No, um, it's it's economic and it's racial and it's social. It's the fact that people are being displaced into East Portland. You build transit infrastructure in the whiter, wealthier core and it raises people's property values and then that pushes them further into East Portland. So you can say that building a train through a low-income neighborhood is good for them until it actually keeps them from having access to even their own neighborhood, let alone the, the amenities of the transit that you build. To find out more about the Bus Riders Unite program, you can visit Opal on the web at opalpdx.org. Now we turn to the live interview with City Council candidate Chloe Udaly. Here's Phil Bussey. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. We are recording, uh, like we do every last Sunday of the month, at the Waypost, a fantastic place on North Williams. I am so pleased we have several guests today. We are starting with Chloe Udaly, who is founder of Reading Frenzy, which is such a wonderful bookstore, and I am so glad it has moved to the east side, if I may say so. Uh, and You're Chloe- welcome. <laughs> And Chloe is also a candidate for city council, and we are going to be talking to her about who you are and why you're running and, and, and how that, because this is the nonprofit hour, how that impacts uh, nonprofits or some of the stances that you have, how those impact nonprofits. Thank you for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Um, Chloe, you, so you're an Oregonian. Yes. That was a... <laughs> Okay. Let's have that. Let's have a little bit more discussion about that. So you're 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 born and bred Oregonian, correct? And and you, how long have you been in Portland? Uh, well, I grew up in a couple rural areas in uh, within the metro area, and I've lived in Portland proper since 1988. And and I feel like that matters. I mean, both you being an Oregonian and you having a long history in Portland and seeing some of the changes. Uh, is that any of the reason you're running for city council? Well, I mean, I I shy away from talking about being a native Oregonian or my family's history here. I don't... Is it don't, scandalous? Uh, <laughs> no. No. It does... Um, 
reach back to the late 1800s, but it's a much longer story than I think we have time for. Because uh, I don't think it should matter. I don't want to create a kind of us versus them vibe in my campaign. However, the fact that I have lived here, uh, and even, I mean, yeah, the fact that I have lived here for almost 30 years means that I've seen this, you know, what's happening now unfold over a long period of time. So I do think I have a better sense of uh, what we had and what we've lost and, and maybe even what's possible than someone who is a more recent newcomer. But I don't, you know, think I deserve a bunch of points for that. Let me, let me ask a more specific Oregon history question then. Do you have a favorite Oregon politician? I do, Gretchen Kafori. And, and um, tell us who Gretchen is, Gretchen Kafori is, and, and what it is that you find uh, exciting or, or inspirational about her. Uh, well, Gretchen was really an activist who became a politician. Um, she's one of the women that helped make City Club, Portland City Club, open up to women. It was a men-only organization for um, decades and dec decades. She, um, I guess I relate to her because she was somewhat of an outsider. She wasn't a career politician and um, she just was able to do some fantastic stuff in, in Portland. And, and well, I mean, what's interesting, though, I mean, she, she definitely is, is a gold standard of uh, politicians and, and the Kafori family has had a big influence over the last, 25 years, yes. uh, you know, and it, I think that that, it, that is yeah. an interesting part of the history of Portland is that outsiders become the insiders. Yeah. You can expand on that comment <laughs> if you like. <laughs> um, well, I mean, if, frankly, I think we have too many insiders right now. I, I don't think that the council is made up of outsiders. Um, I mean, really, the reason that I'm running, because honestly, six months ago, this was not in the cards for me. I'm pretty happy as a bookseller and a publisher and sometimes writer. I do disability advocacy and in the last year my focus has really been on housing. Uh, but when no one came forward who I thought would bring any meaningful change to the city, I felt compelled to step up because I don't know how much long I can hold on here and I know that um, I'm better off than a lot of Portlanders right now, so. And we're going to pause the story right there, and I want to take just sort of two steps back. If this was a movie, we would be like, and ten years earlier. Um, <laughs> let's establish who you are in the community, and, and because Reading Frenzy is, it has been a very important part of the community, what, what is Reading Frenzy? Why did you start it? Um, and then we can have more questions about that. So, as I mentioned, I moved here in the late 80s. I um, was a teenager, and I came of age as an activist during the first Gulf War, and that kind of started a 25-year path of activism uh, around a variety of civil rights and social justice issues, and I've never been a single-issue person, even though I'm really seen as being the single-issue candidate. And that's one of the reasons I opened my bookstore, was really, um, I couldn't decide what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I had too many passions and issues, and I thought a bookstore, it's a mission-driven bookstore devoted to independent small press and self-published titles. 
and really we exist to give space to underrepresented and unheard voices. And so the store opened in 1994. In 1994, we were seeing this massive um, concentration of media among a handful of multinational corporations, which I found alarming, and it's only gotten worse since then, although the internet, for better or for worse, is some, somewhat <laughs> ameliorated ameliar that. Uh, a few years later, I co-founded the Independent Publishing Resource Center that is now located on 10th and Division. It started in my office above Reading Frenzy. And that idea really came out of um, one person after another walking into the shop who had never seen a zine or never heard of self-publishing and wanted to know everything about it right there and then. And eventually my friend Rebecca Gilbert and I decided we need to give these people a space because this is getting really disruptive to the flow of daily business. Um, so that is... It sort of makes you like the Benjamin Franklin of Portland politics. I mean, it's, it's, it's like <laughs> you have your publishing house and... Well, <laughs> Benjamin Franklin made a lot more money than I did in his day. I, I, I want to roll back a bit. I mean, I mean nine, 22 years ago, uh, the book industry was, was our, and book selling as well as the publishing industry was uh, already a very pinched place. I've seen, you've got mail. I know how it goes. Um, <laughs> Good film. <laughs> and and it, it, I, I can only imagine it's become more difficult I mean, yeah. what, how, how have you survived for the past 20 years as, as Barnes and & Nobles and, and, and other bookstores have, have suffered? Well, I want to start by saying I went to travel school to become a travel agent the year before the internet became a household word. So I, I'm not exactly the queen of good timing over here. And uh, then I uh, decided to open a bookstore in 1994. Well, what happened in 1994 was the internet, Amazon, uh, this a rapid proliferation, <laughs> I can say this word, uh, proliferation of big box bookstores. I think um, I was able to skate by because Amazon and Borders didn't care about the strata of the publishing world that I was dealing with, and also because I was really providing more than a bookstore. It was a community space for people to gather and hold events and you know we had a huge free section with all sorts of resources for people to learn about. Um, and I really ignored the internet for many years. Like every journalist that I ever talked to wanted me to talk about the impact of the internet on the publishing and book selling and it was just like the most boring question in the world to me. Um, I finally did confront that reality a bit in the last several years, but we're still going, so. And I, I'm gonna switch, Chloe, over to uh, your, your political campaign right now. And I, it, is there a parallel between that role that, you, that Reading Friends and you have played uh, and, and how you would see yourself serving at City Hall in terms of um, providing a platform or a focal point for, for people whose voices maybe otherwise weren't heard, you know, i.e. the small press, uh, to, to more of a grassroots. Am, am I trying to make too many uh, uh, similarities or, or no, parallels I, here? No, I actually think it's a really interesting question and there are definitely some parallels between what I've done 
with my business and in my advocacy work and why I'm running now, I just have a problem-solving brain. And if I see a problem that I think I can at least contribute to solving, I have an almost overwhelming <laughs> compulsion to try. Uh, so there is that. However, with the bookshop, um, I really was catering to a very, um, well, not specific, but limited clientele um, in that we're pretty much all about progressive and radical politics, alternative culture, um, just anything outside of the mainstream uh, that didn't run afoul of the law, I suppose I should say. Um, and I do, I felt and I still strongly feel that artistic work and literature and media does not have to have a mass appeal to have real value. Now, um, let's see if I can make this <laughs> connection here that's fomenting in my brain. I'm running because I don't think the majority of Portlanders are being heard at City Hall or being heard in Salem. Um, and that is a uh, kind of different reality than the one that I've been working with at the at, with my business. Um, so many of us are struggling with rising rents. Um, middle income earners can no longer afford to buy homes in Portland. We have stagnant wages. We have poor educational outcomes. We are one of the most food insecure states in the union, yet Bloomberg just declared Oregon to have the healthiest economy in the nation. And something is obviously not going right here. And what I've seen, unfortunately, uh, in my crash course in housing advocacy is that even with dozens of organizations and hundreds of community leaders and thousands of residents rallying around affordable housing and tenants' rights, um, at the end of the day, our elected officials are going to sit down with moneyed corporate interests and work out a deal with them. And what we get in return are very meager, I, it's hard for me to call them even protections for tenants. Um, and that happened in Portland and then I just watched it play out again in Salem. And I guess, uh, yeah, I should. This is the Nonprofit Hour. I'm the host, Phil Bussey. I am speaking with Chloe Udaly, who is the founder of Reading Frenzy and a current candidate for city council. Um, Chloe, I want to I want to pick up of what you were talking about. Again, this is the Nonprofit Hour, so I want to talk about both how the issues that you see as as important uh, impact nonprofits, both in terms of what the nonprofits are doing, and then often for some of the people who work in nonprofits. I mean, certainly affordable housing, uh, minimum wage, uh, are, are some of the issues that uh, are, that local nonprofits are working to uh, help with. How as a city councilor would you address those issues or would you support nonprofits? Hmm. Uh, well, I'll just start by saying that Nonprofits employ a significant number or percentage of our workforce, and um, most nonprofit workers are earning less than they would out in 
outside of the nonprofit world, and many of them are facing some of the same challenges the people that they are serving are facing, which is they can't afford to live in the city that they work in. Um, and that's really a recurring problem I'm seeing. I talked to Portland Association of Teachers, and many teachers can't afford to live here anymore. We have 700 firefighters um, that work for you know, in Portland, only 200 of them live in Portland. We can't assume they all live outside of the city because they can't afford to live here, but that's certainly a contributing factor. So back to the nonprofit issue, I think um, dealing with our housing crisis and raising our minimum wage and really working on um, economic development will help everyone across the board, include, including our nonprofit workers, and hopefully alleviate some of the demand for services. Um, we've run out of money for rental assistance. I mean, I don't think that's going to kick back in for several months. Um, yeah. I, I want to just uh, wrap this up, Chloe, okay. and, and I want to how how is the how is the race going for you? What are you enjoying most about it? It's like being back in school. Um, like I said, I have a lot of interests, so it's been really great for me to be forced to focus on these issues. My stack of books next to my bed is like eight different books with the word "city" in the title, um, and these interviews and forums that I'm doing really drive what I'm learning about that day. The other great thing that I didn't think of, you know, was kind of a perk, is that I have an excuse to call anybody I want to in the city and ask if they will take a little time to talk to me about what they do or what their issues are. And so far, everyone's said yes. So that's um, pretty fantastic. And it's going pretty well. It's stressful. I'm having trouble sleeping some nights and I often forget to eat, which, which is a recipe for disaster, <laughs> but I'm working on it. And I love to sing, so I'm trying to sing every week. I was thrilled to hear that the Portland Gay Men's Chorus would also be here. Um, maybe I'll stand in the back and sing along for a little musical therapy. Uh, yeah, so. Karaoke is my self-care at this point. And, and one of the things that we like to do on the Nonprofit Hour is, is to have all of our guests come and, and make a musical selection. Is there a song that uh, you want us to go out on? Well, the song that I chose is I Never Gave Up by Chumbawamba, going back to my punk rock roots. Chloe Udaly, thank you so much. Founder of Reading Frenzy, current candidate for city council. Thank you for joining us on the Nonprofit Hour. Thanks for having me.
You're listening to the Nonprofit Hour from the Media Institute for Social Change on X-Ray FM. To become a supporting member of the Media Institute and find out more about their work, you can visit mediamakingchange.org. Members receive annual benefits and support programs such as the Nonprofit Hour and the Summer Documentary Program. The Nonprofit Hour is also brought to you in part by generous support from Pacific Continental Bank and Business Works. Find out more at www.therightbank.com or www.businessworkspdx.com. Next up, we'll listen in on Phil Bussey's talk with Mac Pritchard of Pritchard Communications. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Media Institute for Social Change's Nonprofit Hour. I am joined by Mac Pritchard, uh, who had started Mac's List, which is a job posting uh, newsletter, website, book, podcast, uh, many multi- many media platforms, as well, Pritchard Communications. And so today we're going to talk about uh, Pritchard Communications and what work it does. Can you give me the tagline or the pitch of, of who you guys are and, and mm-hmm. who you're serving? We're based here in Portland, Oregon. We're a national public relations company, Phil, that works with foundations, nonprofits, and other social change organizations. And our clients include uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, uh, which is uh, based in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, we also do work with, in the Pacific Northwest with organizations like the Northwest Health Foundation, the Mara Memorial Trust, and the uh, in Oregon Wild. We just finished a project for them. Uh, I mean, all great, all great organizations. Now, why do nonprofits and foundations need, uh, a, or do they need, a specialized communications plan or or agency to work with them? Well, every organization has goals it wants to accomplish. In the private sector. It's it's to uh, serve customers and and make a profit. In the nonprofit sector, uh, it's about making changes, making uh, whether it's in policy or in people's lives, it, but making a difference. And their communications su- supports those organizational goals. And and nonprofits and foundations can benefit from strong communications programs because they have great stories to tell, but they also have organizational objectives. Often the, those those objectives fall into one or more of three buckets. It's uh, it could be changing a policy, uh, that's uh, the first area. A second uh, area that matters to to many of these organizations is is attracting new investors or donors or getting an appropriation, and a, a third is um, uh, uh, increasing awareness in the in the community. And a good communications program can support the achievement of those goals. Now, I mean, you're you're working with obviously very sophisticated and large organizations, the Robert, uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, mm-hmm. uh, Meyer Memorial Trust. I mean, they, these these are wonderful organizations, and it's not their first time around the block. But but sometimes have you encountered nonprofits or foundations that come to a marketing plan saying, "Well, we're doing good work." If you just say that we're doing good work, shouldn't people pay attention? Well, people should pay attention, but whether you're a policymaker or uh, a homemaker, we all have only so many uh, hours of the day. And to get the attention of of the people you want to reach, 
and to be clear about the action you want them to take uh, is, is challenging, uh, no matter how good w- the work you are doing. And so organizations like ours help nonprofits and foundations figure out what it is uh, they want to accomplish and how communications can make that happen, and so that their good work and their stories do get the attention of the people they want to reach, and uh, those stories are persuasive enough and those messages targeted enough that they'll uh, produce the outcomes that the organization seeks, and usually it's it, and it, and make the community a better place as a result. And and now now obviously uh, you're you're not selling Pepsi and you're not selling a Lexus car, right. but you are trying to motivate people to take some sort of action, Correct. whether that is giving money to an organization or it is a legislator to. Uh, move from his or her stance or something. So are there parallels to selling Pepsi or Lexus? Well, I think the public relations principles um, are, you know, there are some universal principles that I think any communications program uh, follows. Uh, Obviously, the messages, the audiences, and the strategies and tactics are going to be different. Uh, but the, the, the fundamentals, you know, being clear about what you want, who you want to reach, what's going to move them to action, uh, what benefits that action offers to them, uh, uh, are, are, are the same in the nonprofit world. And, and I, I want to just explore a little bit more, uh, Mac, what you're doing with, with Pritchard Communications sure. in terms of you're, you're not really you're not making an ad for for no necessarily, but you're teaching a person skills. Is yeah. that correct? We are. So typically, we let, let's talk about the services we offer, and uh, we often will start with uh, an assessment of an organization's current communications uh, uh, services and resources. You know, uh, what what does their website look like? Uh, what what does it seek to accomplish? Is that in fact happening? And so that's in in my world. That's called a communications audit, Phil, and that will that provides uh, organizations with a snapshot of their both their strengths and their challenges. That usually uh, sometimes that leads to a communications plan, and the plan is based on the organization's, the nonprofit or foundation's strategic goals. What is it they want? to accomplish and how can communications help them do that uh, and in creating a plan often we'll look at uh, other nonprofits and foundations in that field and, and what they're doing and and see what lessons that might offer for the client we're working with now we do uh, projects as well so we have helped uh, a number of organizations relaunch their websites um, a lot of websites, whether they're in the private or nonprofit sector, um, are still built in that fi- that filing cabinet style that was so popular in the 90s. Let's put every document we ever produced online. And uh, and the, the, the problem with that is nobody ever comes to the website. And if they do, they often don't dig down beyond one or two levels. Um, there's... One of the, I think one of the most fun or fascinating statistics of the last year was the World Bank did an assessment 
of their website. And, and what they do is to seek to help people become break out of the cycle of poverty by providing lots and lots of information in the form of reports that they post on their website. Uh, it turns out, uh, uh, after they did a communications audit, that as many as two-thirds of those reports had never been opened, not even by the authors or the authors' mothers. So making uh, websites that, uh, that attract uh, the audience you want to seek and make them engaging, gather, dynamic gathering places is, is something we, we love to do. Uh, but we also uh, are passionate about helping the organizations we serve learn the skills they need so they don't always need to hire us. And so we do training in media relations and how to work with elected officials, how to do messaging, um, how to write for online audiences, uh, because the more of uh, an organization absorbs those skills and it becomes part of their workforce and their culture, the more effective they'll be in the long run. And and if we can talk maybe about one example, take sure. one of your lessons and, and storytelling. Yeah. Uh, Reclaiming Futures. Yeah. Is an organization that you that you worked with. Who are they? Uh, what did you do with or for them? Reclaiming Futures is based here in Portland at Portland State University. They're a, a national juvenile justice reform project, and they were created by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. The reason they exist is there's lots of research, Phil, that shows that uh, teens who are in trouble with the law are um, uh, more like uh, will that the teens who use drugs and alcohol are more likely to be in trouble with the law and behave violently or, or drop out of school. And juvenile court judges will tell you, if you talk to them, that uh, they, they, they suspect that substance abuse is a huge factor when a young person comes in front of them. But the courts aren't set up uh, to detect substance abuse and much less treat it. And so Reclaiming Future set out to change that, and it, it created a model for change uh, that reinvented how juvenile courts worked in 10 communities across the country. So the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C., looked at this model, uh, said it, it's effective. And so the, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation said, we want other communities to, uh, to adopt this model. So the, the challenge for Reclaiming Futures became, uh, how do we get the word out about the good work we're doing? How do we get this in front of the decision makers we hope will adopt the model? Uh, and those are uh, juvenile justice policymakers at the state and federal level, uh, foundation uh, off program officers, and, uh, and juvenile justice and substance abuse treatment leaders. Those are the key audiences how can we get them to pay attention to us? So what we helped Reclaiming Futures do was relaunch their website five years ago. And we took that filing cabinet model and we turned it on its head. We put a blog at the center of the website. And to uh, we, uh, we provided content in the blog that would be very valuable to a juvenile court judge, a probation officer, a treatment provider who is interested in justice reform. So uh, the content, and we included a job board too, because uh, people in that field are uh, thinking about their own careers, as well as how they can improve their, their courts and their communities. To drive people to that website, we set up a newsletter, and we built a list that included um, the kinds of um, 
the target audiences the Reclaiming Futures wanted to reach. So by providing a steady stream of, by sending that newsletter out, it drove people to the website. And as we added social media accounts, that helped too. So if you think of a picture in your mind, if your website is home base, and the blog is the dynamic heart at the center that's beating, and it's constantly being renewed, and, and there's new content being added, and that helps with um, Google rankings because they love Google loves fresh content. But you've got a newsletter that goes out every week on the same day at the same time that uh, juvenile justice policymakers open because they know they're going to find information that's going to make their job easier. Um, the audience for the Re- for the Reclaiming Futures website went from just a, f- a few hundred a month to twenty thousand a month over a course of, of of a couple of years. And it takes time to do this to build a, an online community, but uh, so that has value in itself. But the organization wanted to spread its model. It wanted new communities to adopt what it was doing, and so the to me the fi- the the um, the outcome that that mattered in the end was that Reclaiming Futures is now in 43 different communities in 18 states. And the people who said yes to Reclaiming Futures coming into their community or invested in it, and the number of investors went from one foundation in New Jersey to um, three foundations on the East Coast plus two federal agencies that helped make the spread of this model possible. that is uh, the best benchmark for success. The role communications played in that field was to create that community of people who cared about this initiative, who later, and many of them, uh, were part of the communities that said, yes, let's bring Reclaiming Futures to our, our state or our town. And that must be a really satisfying job for, for you to yeah. be providing because you're working with organizations that are doing good yeah. work, but that good work can be a tree falling in the woods. Right. Somebody needs to be there to read the blog about that tree falling right. in the woods for it to be successful, for it to be replicated. Yeah. So that must be really that must be a really wonderful work just to feel like you are helping them actually accomplish their, their jobs. It is, and um, I feel fortunate to do it. Uh, and it's been a constant in my career. I've worked for nonprofits or elected officials or public agencies, and now I have my own firm throughout my career. And, and the, I've had a lot of different jobs uh, in a lot of different um, subject areas, but the constant that runs through it is I've always had a chance to make a difference about issues I care about or, or make a positive difference in the community where I live and work. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I'm speaking with Mac Pritchard, uh, who ha- runs Mac's List as well as Pritchard Communications. Mac, how about another song? Well, I'd like to introduce a, one of my favorites by Sam Cooke, Change is Gonna Come. Wonderful.
Yes, it will. It's been too hard living, but I'm afraid to die. Cause I don't know what's up there beyond the sky. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. That was the great Sam Cooke, Change Is Gonna Come. I believe that's the first rock song or blues song, however you want to categorize it, that was quoted in an inauguration speech. President Obama referenced it in in his first inauguration. I'd forgotten that, yeah. Yeah, just such a uh, soft-spoken but inspiring song. Yeah. Um, it has a, a wonderful story, which I'm sure you know about, and um, uh, and I, I'd encourage readers to to go online to wikipedia oh we'll we'll share it yeah nutshell oh sure Uh, cook was touring in the south uh he and his uh, band came to a a holiday inn in shreveport louisiana they were turned away uh and then he complained and they were sent he went to a downtown hotel this is 1963 and he's he's a star uh uh the police came and and arrested him and uh, uh, and he was, because of that, ex- that experience ex- inspired the story, the song rather. And, uh, it was, uh, as I'm sure, you know, he was a popular cultural success and th- there was a risk for him in, in taking on a topic like this and, and singing a song like this. It was a big shift and it became a, an anthem of the civil rights movement. Yeah. He, he certainly got the last word in on that argument. Yeah. Um, this is Phil Bossy. It's the Media Institute for Social Changes Nonprofit Hour. I'm speaking with Mac Pritchard, uh, who runs MaxList, which is a fantastic, robust uh, job listings, job postings. Uh, what do I even call it? A website, a newsletter, a podcast, a book, uh, as well as uh, Pritchard Communications, which uh, does does wonderful work with helping foundations, helping nonprofits, social change organizations with communication strategies and with really tra- training people to help them manage getting their message out there. Part of the challenge, I would think, is the changing landscape. I mean, even since you've started these uh, things are moving quickly uh, in terms of, you know, Facebook was obviously a a hot form for a while and now maybe not as much or there's some limitations on it. Twitter has its advantages, it has its disadvantages. Uh, What skills, however, stay the same? The strategic skills being uh, never change and you can always improve them. Being clear about who you want to reach, what you want to accomplish, the action you want them to take, understanding how, where the, your, the people you want to reach gather, where they hang out, uh, how they like to get information, that, that never changes. So I, I, I graduated from college in 1980. I did an internship in D.C., Washington, D.C., rather, in 79, and for um, a nonprofit that uh, uh, did public relations work on behalf of human rights issues and the tools then seem uh, very basic now. We had IBM's electric typewriters, we delivered news releases by hand at the National Press Building, we 
Um, uh, we pitched reporters over telephones, and you, often you had to trade calls three or four times before you get somebody on the line. But what hasn't changed is the being clear, uh, uh, the the benefits of good or the effectiveness of good messaging, knowing who you want to reach and knowing what you want them to do and say. In many ways, I I much prefer this era because in those days, the media was a kind of gatekeeper. And you had to get by a reporter. You had to work with a reporter or an editor to get your message in the newspaper or on the television to get in front of policymakers. Now you get to make your own media, and you can communicate directly with uh, policymakers. So this is a great time to be doing this work. But what about the argument that there's just so much out there, and there's clutter, and there's and it's hard to get around that clutter? Is 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 that a is that a valid problem? I think it only reinforces the, the need to be clear about who you want to reach and what you want them to do. And uh, so many people, when I, I ask about their audiences, they start with the general public. And I, with kindness, I say the general public is not an audience. And usually I find that they're, when we drill down, it's, they know who they want to reach, our, our, our clients or the people we uh, talk to about working with. It just takes them a while to get there. Um, so if you're clear about w- what you want to accomplish and uh, who can say yes, it, it, you, you'll, you'll, get, you'll be so much more effective. The, 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 the story I like to tell is you know, I think everybody knows in Hollywood, if you want to get a studio movie made, there are probably, I, I don't know the exact number, Phil, maybe 50, 100 people who can greenlight your movie. Everybody in Hollywood knows who those 50 or 100 people are, and they all want to get in front of them. And so I think the challenge for nonprofits and people working in social change is just to be clear about who can greenlight their movie, whatever it might be. And once they're clear about that, and they know, then they can figure out where those people hang out, what they care about, and what their objections are going to be to whatever it is you want them to do. And then you can tackle that. And, and so somebody wants to find out more information, they're, they're interested in the services that Pritchard Communications provides, how is the best way for them to start a conversation with you? Visit our website, pritchardcommunications.com. There's no T in Pritchard. There's an S at the end of communications. We have a blog about social change communications. We publish every week on Thursdays uh, posts that you can use with practical, actionable ideas about how to do nonprofit communications. It's free. There's a newsletter. You can sign up for it. So check us out. And uh, even if we don't have the opportunity to work together, uh, we want to share with the nonprofit community uh, our tips and tricks because we find that the, the more we do that, the better it is for the community as a whole. That's a fantastic, wonderful, wonderful resource for nonprofits in the Portland area and just in general. Mac Pritchard runs Pritchard Communications and also uh, found it and manages Mac's List. Mac, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us today. Thank you, Phil. It's a pleasure. And let's, uh, uh, Mac, how about we take it out with uh, one more song selection for you? I'd like to suggest a Beatles classic, uh, I Get By With A Little Help From My Friends. I I thought you were going to go with Hard Day's Night, but I love this choice. Thank you.
Now come to the end of this week's Nonprofit Hour show. The show has been produced and edited by myself, Jason Dennington, and is recorded at the production studios of X-Ray FM. You can follow us on Facebook or via our Twitter handle at Nonprofit Hour and find archives of past shows on our SoundCloud page. We'd like to thank our guests on the show this week, Sean Fleek and Orlando Lopez of Opal Environmental Justice, City Council candidate and Reading Frenzy founder, Chloe Udaly, and Mac Pritchard of Pritchard Communications. We'd also like to thank the Media Institute for Social Change, our regular hosts, Phil Bussey and Julie Falk, KXRY Radio X-Ray FM, our supporters, Pacific Continental Bank and BusinessWorks, and most of all to you, our regular listeners. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you have a great week, and join us again next week at noon on Monday for the Nonprofit Hour Show.